2 Kings chapter 3, if you'll make your way to 2 Kings uh, chapter 3. This story is a whopper, and you're going to say, what, if you're like me all the way along this way, and there's really no solution. Okay. There's no real solution to this. You're going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to speculate a little bit to get to a solution. So I'm going to pick you up like for the first 10 verses, very well read just a moment ago, and I'm going to introduce you to the characters. So here are the characters. First, you've got Jehoram that we're going to be talking about, a son of Ahab. Ahab is bad or good? He's terrible. He's terrible. And Jezebel, his wife, too. He's the son of Ahab. His brother actually is the one in line with the throne, but you may remember he fell through a lattice and died after seven days. So he's already gone. So, so then jo, uh, Jehoram, or Joram, Jehoram gets to be able to be king. He uh, ruled for 12 years. He is evil. He's not as bad as his parents. He got rid of some of the Baal stuff, but he clung, it says, I love that verb, clung to the sins of Jeroboam, who was terrible. And he's one of the Omrides. I want you to know that, the, the, the sons of Omri. You've got Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, and that wicked queen, the only queen ever in Israel, Athaliah. They're all from Omri. Now, that's important in a minute, so just remember the Omri people. That's that years, the years when Ahab's father's offspring rule, okay? Just remember that for later. Jehoshaphat enters the scene, too. He's a great king. He's really good, and people like him. He's very well-respected, but he tended... As we looked at a few weeks ago, he tended to get into alliances that he never should have messed with. And I had several people kind of tell me, well, don't you think the reason he got into these alliances is he, he wanted Israel to be united again? He wanted God's people to be one nation again? And I think that's probably true. He wanted to, and so he hoped that his influence could make them all good. He longed for unity to be restored, just like Jesus on the night he was was killed, right? He wanted that unity. But unity at any cost is not worth having. So be careful that your love for unity doesn't cause you to accept the lowest common denominator, which might actually be evil. That's kind of the lesson we learned from Jehoshaphat. But he's in this story. And then you've got Misha. You've probably heard of him. Those of you who ever, did, did, did anybody like world history? Eight of you. Okay, so... Um, uh, world history, uh, this is well known. This, this, piece, this piece of rock right here is called the Moabite steel or the Moabite stone. It is, uh, it is interesting Canaanite history that's in Palestine, and it's the oldest Moabite writing. It's kind of how they de decipher Moabite writing, and it has something that pertains to our story tonight on it. It's fascinating. It's in the Louvre in, um, in Paris. But the king of Moab was Misha. He was a sheep breeder king. He was also a servant or a vassal of Israel. So what he did is every year he provided, uh, he provided lambs and wool from rams to Israel because they've been, they've been their vassal of Israel since the days of David in 2 Samuel 8. You may remember Solomon also had a Moabite wife that he built a house for, so there's some Moabite connections. But this was found in Palestine. It's interesting to me. It's a lot of ancient world history, but it corresponds also with Bible history. And when it happens like that, it's kind of fascinating. Uh, but when Ahab died, this king, Misha, decided he was going to test to see if Israel was strong enough to force that vassal relationship to continue. Um, and so this is, this is uh, Misha of Moab. He's the king of all that. Moabite history is weird. Does anybody know where the Moabites came from? It's 
kind of one of those ugly, yeah, Lot was made drunk by his daughters and his daughters slept with him and Moab came, became at it. So this is an incestuous relationship. This story just gets weirder and weirder. So we're going to stop it right there, but I'm just going to say that's Misha, right? He's over Moab at this time and he's testing Israel. Elisha's in the story. He's the successor of Elijah, you know that. And so we go with the storyline to catch it up with what we've read in the first 10 verses. Misha had strengthened himself and decided he was going to test Israel to see if they could force him to continue being subservient. He was tired of providing all these lambs and rams and, and wool for Israel. And so he's thinking, I think I'm going to break free of Israel. Jehoram didn't like that. He was a lover of lamb chops and he liked wool clothing. And so he doesn't want to be out of the supply, right? So he musters all of Israel. I love that word the ASV uses, mustered Israel. He didn't, he didn't catch them up, he mustered them. Anyway, so it, it just, he marched them down south, but he wasn't going to go by himself. He says, hey, Jehoshaphat, he's the king of Judah in the south. Hey, Jehoshaphat, will you go with me? If you remember, Jehoshaphat went with Ahab several times, at least once, right? Because he wanted to force that unity again. So he said, yeah, I'll go with you again, even though God had slapped him around a little bit from the last time. But he doesn't, in fact, here's the, the words from the last time. This is after he helped Ahab, right? Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem after fighting with Ahab, with Ahab against another nation. But Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? I know they're Israel, but they're not really my people. Because of this, wrath has gone out. Remember that. Wrath has gone out, right, because of this from the Lord. So he got slapped the last time. And here the son of Ahab now asked him to go. And he says, well, sure, I'll go with you. Why did he not stop and go, maybe I shouldn't do this? Anyway, he doesn't. They get another king to join them, Edomites. And they take a long route. Here's a map. I don't know if you can see where you are. Judah, that's Jehoshaphat's people. Israel up there in the green, that's where Jehoram is. Edom down here at the bottom is going with them. Now, logically, if you're in Samaria, which I don't have a laser, but it's up there in the middle of the green, if you're going to attack, yeah, right there, up here, and then Moab down here on this side of the Dead Sea, right, your most logical route is to attack from the top, right? Isn't that obvious? I mean, you just kind of go, whoop, and you get there. No, we're not doing that. We're going to go down through Judah, down through Edom, and up from the bottom. We're going to take them by surprise. Now, a couple of problems with this is that when you go through Judah, right down here, right at the bottom toward Edom, is some of the worst desert territory anywhere. There's just no water down there. And that's where the reading ended. They were down there with no water. So we're going to join this. 2 Kings chapter 3, beginning verse 10 again. Here's what the king of Israel said. Oh my, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hands of Moab. Jehoram says, why did God call us to do this? When did God call them to do it? He didn't call them to do it. What made you think he ever gave you this idea? You ever know people that when things go wrong, they immediately blame God and God had nothing to do with it? Anybody know this? Maybe September 11th. Where's God in all this? Well, we've asked him out of our country for years. Why are you blaming him when you never credited him? Right? 
I mean, why, why are we blaming God for promises he never made? This happens all the time. God did not call these three kings together. Jehoram called these kings together. And they're doing what he wants. It has nothing to do with it, but he wants to blame God. And so he does. God called us together, and look at this. Jehoshaphat said, verse 11, Is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Isn't there someone we can, we can go and, and pray to God about and get a prophet to intervene for us? Jehoshaphat is the voice of reason, but I'm wondering, Jehoshaphat, why didn't you do this before the story started instead of in the middle of the story when their tire goes flat? This is like using God as a spare tire. I only think of him when I go flat. But, notice what happens. One of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He's down there who poured water on the hands of Elijah. He's somewhere down on this battle. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. He knows it. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. They didn't call him up to them. They went down together to meet with Elisha to figure out what they should do. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? I do not like you, Jehoram. You are Ahab's offspring. I don't like you. Why don't you just go to the prophets of your fathers and the prophet of your mother? But the king of Israel, in other words, let me give you a referral to your false prophets, and you just go back home and ask them. But, he says, the king of Israel, he said, but, Elisha says, as the Lord of hosts li live before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I wouldn't look at you and I wouldn't even see you. Because the good king Jehoshaphat is here, I will go before God. So bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him, and he said, Thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam bed, st stream bed full of pools. That's my ESV, but it's not your NIV. The NIV says, You dig the pools, and I'll fill them up. Don't think that's what it's supposed to say. I think ESV is right. God says, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, and you'll drink your livestock and all your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. God says, I can do that without lifting a finger. I love this. God's going to go ahead and intervene for the sake of a righteous king. Now, you know that verse? The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The only reason Elisha did anything for this alliance is because Jehoshaphat was a righteous man. I do want you to know God really is kind of partial God will do stuff and listen to righteous people more quickly than he will people who are using him as a spare tire. That just seems to be illustrated here, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous person. Then it gets the first what moment, all right? Now, I don't know. If you just look at verse 17, it says, thus says the Lord. You notice that, thus says the Lord, you got it on the screen now, thus says the Lord, I will, and, and, and Elisha quotes God's actual words, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools, for thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water, you shall drink, and your livestock and your animals. In other words, it ain't going to rain, but the water's going to come from somewhere. Overnight, 
the waters appear and it's full. But there was no rain in the forecast and there was no rain in the sky. Look at the rest of this though. He says, he will, I put it in italics because I find it weird that he doesn't say thus saith the Lord anymore. He's just giving a report and that, that's important to know. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. I don't know what that means. But he's going to give the Moabites into your hand and you will attack. I don't, I don't know if he's saying you should attack or if he's just saying this is what you're going to do. But for a prophet to say it makes me think that this is what God wants. You will attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Two things about this cause confusion. Back there in the law of God, he says two things. Here's number one. This is Moses in Deuteronomy 2. We turned and we went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. This is in the days of Moses, first days, he's reviewing it. And the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab. Don't contend with them in battle. I will not give you any of their land for their possession because I've given Ar and the people of Lot for a possession to the people of Lot for possession. He goes on to say, it's theirs, and they have right to it as much as you have a right to the promised land. You can't take Moabite territory. God wants them to have it. So whatever give into your hand means, it seems like God is saying, you can't have the land, but you can go strike them. Here's problem number two, which is even worse. When you, these are the rules of warfare given in Deuteronomy 20, and this is general warfare against all your enemies. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees. By wielding an ax against them, you may eat from them, but you will not cut them down. Are, 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 the, are the trees in the field human? That they should be besieged by you? Do they deserve to be mistreated by you? God cares about land. Anybody who thinks God doesn't care about land needs to look at the Old Testament again. The land is precious to him. You remember when he said, oh, I see the earth, it's good, right? Don't mess with it. Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Do not destroy the land's trees. But Elisha says, I want you to cut down every single tree. The law says one thing and Elisha seems to say another. And I'm just wondering, isn't he supposed to be pointing them back to the law? I don't know. This, I just don't understand it. I don't, this makes no sense to me, but we're just going to leave it there because I have no answer for this. So here's what happens in actual time. Uh, the next morning, verse 20, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. Water just appeared. And the interesting thing is this water wasn't just a solution for their thirst. Notice what happens next. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. So here they come, they're going to fight. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. It looked like a lot of blood out there. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely turned on each other, struck one another down. Now then, Moabites, go get the spoil. And I think what that means is put down your armor, take your armor off, put down your weapons, and run out there and get all that we can get. 
But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites saw them, rose up, and struck them until they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. Victory, right? This isn't the first time this kind of happened. It's happened in the Old Testament at least once with Jehoshaphat as they sang the foreign kings turned on each other and killed each other and Israel won. Apparently it's not unheard of that these alliances that were formed couldn't stay together very long, right? They couldn't like each other very long. Verse 25, and they overthrew the cities on an every good piece of land. Every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped up every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left. And Kir Harasheth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. They did what God told them to, even though that seems to be against the law in the Old Testament. They call that Rock City now, right? Somewhere. So when the king of Moab saw... He's witnessing all this stuff, and when he saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was supposed to reign in his place, his successor, offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. He goes up there in full view of everybody to get his God to respond to him. He slaughters his own son in the view of everybody. And what happens next is just sheer weirdness. And there came great wrath against Israel. They withdrew from him and returned to their own land. All right, let's go home. War's over. Go back. What in the world? I hope you read this. I challenge you to read this and go, what What do you understand about this? The they here, they, this Israelite alliance, withdrew from him, the Moabite king and his people, returned to their own land. What's the wrath? Who's angry at Israel? Who's angry at Israel and drives them away? Who, and why are they angry? And it looks to me like Moab wins. God says, I'll give them into your hand. No, he doesn't. The prophecy of Elisha fails. Chemosh wins. How do you explain this? The question in your mind should be is, uh, who's wrath and why is it against Israel? It isn't explained so there's all sorts of answers to come up with it. One is, uh, some say the sacrifice of the son of Misha motivated his own warriors in rage, and Israel suddenly couldn't withstand the momentum switch. You ever been in a game where you're winning, but something happens, the other team gets the momentum, and it feels like you just, you just lost even though you're ahead still? It just motivated those... Moabite warriors and Israel could no longer withstand it. They became great anger because their future king was sacrificed. I, that just doesn't make sense to me. Some say Israel was so appalled that this, this action of killing your own son, which is 
something repulsive to God and it's supposed to be repulsive to his people that that it sickened them and they didn't want to fight anymore it made them angry but this says the wrath was against Israel why why would that be something to punish Israel for some argue that because Israel broke the Deuteronomic law they were trying to go too far They shouldn't have been trying to take cities and destroy people. They should have just been strengthening that alliance, but don't take cities. They shouldn't have been taking Moabite land, or they shouldn't have been throwing those stones. They should have been cutting down those trees. But isn't that what Elisha told them to do? I mean, I'm confused about Elisha's role in this altogether. And it just seems like there's a big, long gap between doing this stuff and then this anger coming upon them. Some even say that Moabite god Chemosh was so impressed with the drastic action of getting his attention and that devotion that you're willing to offer your firstborn son that he woke up, that he woke up and he finally decided to put Israel in their place. Now, you coast know, this is where the Moabite stone fits in. Let me give you this. This is actual wording from that Moabite stone or steel that is in France. Omri was the king of Israel. This is written by Misha. This is one of those rare occasions where the enemy of Israel has a word to say. He says, Omri was the king of Israel. He oppressed Moab for many days. For Chemosh was angry with his land. And his son, talking about Omri, his son Ahab succeeded him. And he said, I will too. I'm going to oppress Moab too. And every one of the sons and grandsons does this. But in my day, he did this. But I looked down on him and on his house, and Israel was gone to ruin. Yes, it has gone to ruin forever. Misha says it was during my day that we broke free of Israel. My God woke up, and we took care of Israel. That's the spin he put on it in Moab. It's on the Moabite steel. Isn't that interesting? We get their point of view. Well, I appreciate that, and it probably strengthened that resolve against Israel, But the problem is I don't believe in the Moabite religion and Chemosh and all that stuff, so I don't buy that. But the most direct route of this, right, it seems to me when you look at the text that verse 27b happened because of what happened in 27a. What made the wrath come against Israel was that the oldest son who was to reign in Misha's place was offered as a burnt offering on the wall. Did God get so mad at his own people for pressing it too far? Did Israel press it so far that the Moabite king felt in such desperation for his own land, he offered up his own son, and God says, no, that, I'm not pleased with that. I, I don't like that. That's not what I ever asked for, and I want Israel to go home. But why would he be mad at Israel for the Moabites doing this? I mean, if they do that, that's their own problem. Why would he be mad at his own people? That has some bearing, I think. That has some merit to it. But let me give you just an argument and a spin of my own because the answer is not going to be clear in the text. It just ends with this mystery. The Moabites believed that their God woke up from his frustration with his own people based on this incredibly powerful, devoted action of offering up his own son to get his attention. 
And I think God's people thought so too. They were polytheistic here. Certainly all of Israel was. Jehoram was. Certainly Edom was. And I think even among the Judah people, they were at least open to the idea these other gods are real and we don't want to mess with them. And so when, when the Moabites thought that their God was going to listen to them, God's people said, this is getting serious. This is getting serious and we look at this and we're terrified because they just called upon their God in the most drastic action possible and we actually believe that God exists and we're a little bit worried about it and they've started to worry and fret and they lost their faith. They lost heart over this. They believed in other gods and they just witnessed the greatest provocation that the other, God, the other king could offer to get their God to respond and Israel was worried about it and when God saw that they were more afraid of what this false God, God's king does and they were losing heart over it, he got angry at his own people for not trusting his own word and his own presence enough to attack. When he saw their fear and fretfulness over false God and what they do with him and they were losing heart he just gets angry and he drives his people away and says forget the victory I kind of think that might have happened what Israel should have known let me just say it this way what Israel should have known is that there are no other gods beside God right there are no other gods besides Yahweh He's the one true and living God. And any kind of call that another nation nation makes upon its own God to get it to respond is completely irrelevant to you following your God and his word. Just trust him. You don't have to worry about all the rest of the stuff. Just put your eyes on God. And you might say, well, who cares? It might be easy to say this is Old Testament, so who really cares what happened? Do we do this sometimes? You know this too, don't you? You know there's no other God, don't you, church? Don't you know this? There is no other God besides our God. He's the one true living God. And there's nothing else you can call upon, no other kind of God you can call upon to give you real help and real sustaining when life gets difficult. There's nothing else you can call upon more stable and secure than the God you serve. And yet we do this all the time. What's China doing? What's the... Man, who's going to win the next election? We bite our nails. What's the stock market going to do? And people turn to all sorts of different things to medicate their worries and their fretfulness. And even Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, look at the birds. Look at the flowers of the field, the stuff that you need God provides, and he's going to provide for you. Why are you so fretful? It's the same principle, only enlarged a little bit because it's in the context of war. And I think here's the truth. Most, I think all of God's promises are conditional. You remember going in the promised land? This is the most obvious one for this generation. Going in the promised land, God says, I'll go before you and I'll fight for you, but you do have to fight. I will go and I will go ahead of you and I will fight and I will clear the way, but you've got to go. And so when he sends the spies in, oh, the land's too big. And Joshua and and Caleb, they're willing to say, hey, God's with us. He's going to, the people, no, they're too big. We're like grasshoppers. 
God made the promise. God told them over and over, I'm giving you the land. The deed has been signed over to you. I'm going to fight for you. Just go in there and fight. No, we're not going to fight because we don't think you can do it, God. That's the problem, isn't it? The promise was forfeited for that generation simply because God wasn't powerful enough. No, because they didn't believe he was. Sometimes promises are not fulfilled, not because God can't deliver, but because we won't act on them. We don't believe them enough to do anything. And I think that's what this case was. God had a promise for them. God spoke through the prophet for them. But when they got there and saw, boy, I don't know, this is getting, we're getting a little, we're not sure God can do this. Whenever Chemosh wakes up, this is his territory after all. And God says, what is wrong with you people? I guess it's just really impressive when a king believes in his God so much that he is willing to actually put his son up in a wager. He's actually willing to slaughter that son in full view of everybody to get his God to respond. But get this tonight very carefully for us as God's people. We serve a God who never asks us to do that. But he did for us, didn't he? We serve a God unlike any other. He never says, let me see how serious you are. And when you really want me, offer your kids. He says, don't offer your kids, but let me tell you what I think of you. I am so behind you. I am so present with you. I will offer my son for you. It's, I'm going to do it that way. This, we can absolutely look at the cross and know without question our God is real. He loves us. He's present with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. And we can trust him when the bills are getting high and when the tension's getting high and when the the world seems to be falling apart we can trust our God and when we wonder we don't need a new fresh sacrifice of our sons we just need to look back at the cross and what do you know he asks us every week to look back there every week look back there am I big enough for you do I care enough for you am I president am I concerned enough for you do you think I care about you do you think I love you you ought to know don't give me your son. I'll give you mine. That's our God. And he makes promises. You struggle with guilt and shame for things. Yes, you did. But God says to us, give them to me, confess them to me, and I'll forgive you. But do you believe him? Because the truth is, the peace won't come to you unless you believe he did you won't feel some release physically of something that's burdening you you don't know that for sure but do you trust him enough by his very words you're going to believe it if you struggle with forgiving yourself it's because you struggle with god's word and that's the problem. He's made you a promise, and he's willing to keep it. But if it doesn't motivate you to actually obey it and do what you need to do, you don't really believe it then. You, you've lost heart. He wants to give you the city. Go take it. I want you to remember this verse. What Jesus did on the cross, he disarmed the rulers, the authorities, put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. God defeated all the spiritual powers of the world. 
in the cross. And when you're baptized, it's an amazing thing. It's like he says, he raises you into the heavenly realms where Jesus is. You are already there. You're not going to be there one day. You're already there. You have power over the, the forces, the authorities. But through Christ, by being in Christ, you've been lifted up over all this stuff. So act like royalty. If you're God's daughter, why don't you act like it? Shouldn't fear anything. We should be so moved, so deeply touched, so motivated by the divine love that drove him to give up his son that we believe him so completely, we'll obey him and know that he's going to meet us on the other side of obedience with absolute, absolute perfect fulfillment of the promises. But remember, Israel had those promises too. They just didn't believe him enough to act on him. God can promise all he wants. He can even be all that he is for us. But if you don't believe it enough to live like it, you won't receive the blessing of it. You sabotage the promises by not believing them. Or you can be one who gathers around the table every Sunday morning and thinks about this even through the week and savor the promises and the promise maker and so believe completely in him that the peace comes. I don't know that God just gives peace. I think that peace comes when you believe him and trust him enough to give it to him and then the peace results. But if you want to stand off and not trust him, and live with that lack of peace and that uncertainty and that nerve-wracking tension and nail-biting uh, just anxiety because you're not really sure that God's big enough to handle this thing in your life. And if you, if you want to do that, you can do that. But why not just trust him and take the city no matter what other details happen? I don't know that that's the right interpretation of this chapter. I may be totally wrong. And Joel Inman will text me later on tonight and tell me. Or Joel's wife. Because he knows this stuff. We talked about it before and I asked everybody I knew, all the, uh, the Bible professors, and they were all saying, well, it could be this, could be this. And so I, I text back to him, so you're saying you don't really know. So then my theory is as good as yours. Yeah, that's true. This may not be right. But it's, as best I, it's the best I can do, and it makes a great application for us. Our God is huge. He's done great things for us, and he loves you dearly. And I hope you'll live like it this week. And I hope the world can see you living like it because the world needs to see that what results from believing in a God who gave up his son for us is incredible peace and joy and confidence as we live our lives in a crazy, crazy world. And if that's something that you don't have that you really want tonight, why not come and get it as we stand, as we sing together?